I want us to focus for the summer on the book called First Peter. It's a letter, as I'll introduce in a moment, and it is a letter to churches that are in the midst of a very difficult time. And so we can probably individually and maybe even corporately identify with the recipients of this letter because uh, we all go through very challenging times at periods in our life. And as we go through this letter, you might think it's going to take, what, 12 weeks to do First Peter? That seems rather slow. Uh, that's not, because as you will find, I hope, that it is so rich and so wonderfully packed, not only with doctrinal truth and practical truth, but just a wonderful God-honoring worship. And I encourage you, as we begin this process today, to work through First Peter. This week, if you have opportunity, read through it. Read it aloud. Catch the richness of the language. And remember who wrote it. A fisherman. A common fisherman. Not a well-educated man. But who was so captured by the Gospel and captured by Christ that he is lifted up into the heavenlies and can praise God with this wonderful letter uh, that we'll be examining together this week. So let's pray before I read the Word and then I'll ask you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for the opportunity to come apart to a place of beauty, to a place of sweet fellowship, not only with our brothers and sisters, but also with you, O Lord. We know you're here. We know the movement of your Spirit. And we pray, Father, that with all the possible distractions that surround us in this outdoor setting, that uh, we would be able to focus our minds, our hearts upon you, upon your Word, and thank you for it. We pray, Father, you'd bless us in this time that we would be encouraged to walk more faithfully with you, to understand your faithfulness to us. And leaving this place, Lord, we would know once again the sweet joy of walking with Christ. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will now stand, we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're looking at the first 12 verses. Next Sunday, we'll look at the same section, the latter half. Uh, this morning, we're looking primarily at the beginning verses. Hear the word of our God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him 
and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You may be seated. How many of you remember what you were doing five weeks ago right now? Probably many of you were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. It's only been five weeks and here we are at the precipice of summer and that seems perhaps so long ago. But let me ask you this. Are you still as joyful about the resurrection today as you were on Easter Sunday? Of course, it's possible that you weren't that joyful then. It's possible that you haven't really understood the the importance and the the key that the resurrection is to the Christian life. And it's possible that you don't base the hope of life here and after in grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's possible for an unbeliever, of course, but it's even possible for a believer not to have their hope grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. But that's the point that we need to see this morning. Peter the Apostle, Peter the Fisherman, Peter who now 30 years after he has seen the resurrected Christ, writes to us this wonderful letter and he focuses the very beginning on what we see there in verse verse 3, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now think back 30 years prior to the writing of this letter. Peter's in Jerusalem, the crucifixion has taken place. The word comes to the gathered disciples from Mary that the tomb is empty. Remember, five weeks ago? And in John chapter 20, it tells us that John, the apostle, and Peter go to the tomb, and and John goes in, and Peter stands outside, then then they go in, and, and what do they see? They see that the tomb is empty. And perhaps you've seen depictions of the tomb and what it would have been cut in the rock, a doorway, a small little room the size of a large closet, a bench there on which you would lay the body. And what they see in there are the grave claws, the shroud, the linen shroud that wrapped Jesus' body, now blood-stained, laying there on the bench with the head napkin covering off to the side. But no Jesus. No Jesus. And the text specifically tells us this. It says that they did not understand that Jesus Christ must rise from the dead. And yet, 30 years later, Peter can say, all of our hope is grounded in this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How did he get there? And what are the truths that Peter wants us to know today that help us to understand why he can say that? The same man who didn't understand now understands oh so wonderfully well. So look with me at these verses then. And let's see what Peter has for us this morning. We're focusing primarily on verse 3 and 4 because they're so rich. So rich. What Peter is saying, summarized in this way, 
The Christian's hope of eternal inheritance is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Christian's hope of an eternal inheritance is grounded in, founded in, built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what Peter does is he gives us seven key points here. Answers to questions that someone might ask. And so we're going to ask them. So this is a seven-point sermon. Now that's way more than I usually do, and way more than you're probably used to. And if it doesn't work, next week's sermon will have no point at all. So let's look at the questions. We're going to ask the questions. Peter's going to give us the answers. Here's the first question. What is it that Peter is saying Christians have? And the answer is there in verse 3. New life in Christ. We are born again. Born again to a living hope. Some translations say He has begotten us again. The technical term is you have been regenerated by the Spirit of the living God. Why is that necessary? Because you're dead. You and I are spiritually dead. No one is righteous. No, not one. The state of all humanity since the fall into sin of Adam and Eve has been spiritual deadness. I'm not talking when you get up in the morning and you're just sort of feeling spiritually dead a little bit. You're not very alive in Christ. I'm talking about spiritual deadness to such an extent that you cannot, cannot even come to Christ. And what Peter tells us here is that the necessity is that we have been born again to a living hope because that's exactly what we need. Because if not, that spiritual deadness will lead to a physical deadness which will lead to an eternal deadness. So the first question is, what do Christians have? The answer is new life in Christ Jesus. You and I need to be remade. Do you know that? The phrase from John chapter 3, you must be born again. That's on the lips of the Lord, not Peter. The Lord Himself says it to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Hopefully you know that. But if you're here and you've not heard this phrase before, or this concept, know this to be true. It's the absolute foundation of what it means to become a Christian. God, His Holy Spirit, must come and bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's Peter's first point. You must be born again. Now, perhaps a corollary question is, how do you know if it's happened? Well, do you have any spiritual life in you? Do you have any sense that God by His Spirit has brought you from death to life and that you are alive in Christ and that you know and you can read the Scriptures and you you understand things you had never seen before and there's a spiritual conversation you can have with other people and there's a growing sense of your union with Christ and, and your faith is maturing. Uh, That's what's going to happen subsequent to the initial, you must be born again. Peter's point is, what do you have if you're in Christ? You've been born again. And that should be something that we give thanks for. But we have seven questions, let's move on. What's the second question? The second question we're going to ask of the text is, because of this regeneration, uh, we have new life, but what's the cause of that regeneration. Peter tells us, verse 3, God's great mercy. Another translation says His abundant mercy. Now sometimes we confuse grace and mercy. They're they're brother and sister of ideas. What's mercy? Mercy is to your misery. 
Grace is to your guilt. You're guilty, you don't deserve it. You're miserable because of sin. And so because of the state that we're in, in the fallen nature of Adam, we are in a miserable state because of the nature of sin. It causes misery. And God in His mercy and His grace comes to us in our misery and lifts us up. And that's why we are born again. Now, mercy can be very simple or can be large. If, if you're thirsty out there right now and, and someone's wandering around and says, look, I've got some cold water, would you like a drink? You would say what? Yes, and then, thank you. And that's an adequate thank you. What if you're dead in trespasses and sins, you have no hope of life, you're headed for hell, and you are in a miserable state, and God lifts you up and renews your spirit and gives you life? What do you say? Thank you. Where's the thanks for God's abundant mercy, great mercy? It's by His mercy that He has brought you from death to life. What should be the attitude of the Christian's heart? If we reflect on what we were and now what we are in Christ Jesus and recognize that it was mercy that brought us. Oh, the thanksgiving that should well up inside of us every day. What's the cause of you being born again? It's God's great mercy. Third question. How? What's the means by which all this takes place? Yes, it's the Holy Spirit. But look at how Peter phrases it in verse 3. It's according to His great mercy that He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, or some translations, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the power of the resurrection that brings this to pass. It's the motivating force. It's the resurrection. And if you notice the way Peter structures this verse, it is everything leading to the resurrection. You're born again to a living hope through the resurrection. And then as he moves on, it is the resurrection that leads to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, etc. So if you're on the teeter-totter of life, the fulcrum point upon which everything hinges or turns is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the point. And why is that so vital? We celebrate the cross. We have crosses in our churches. We wear crosses. We, we look to the cross. We've sung about the cross today. The cross, absolutely vital. But Easter Sunday is about the resurrection. And Peter's saying the resurrection proves the validity of the cross. Why did Jesus die? He died as a substitute for sinners who needed to be born again. And yet being born again doesn't save you. You also need the penalty paid for your sins. And so Jesus does that on the cross. That's the Gospel. He dies in the place of sinners. He's your substitute. And to prove that that was acceptable for the Father, though He dies the wages of sin or death, He then again lives on Resurrection Sunday, because the Father accepts the perfect sacrifice of the Son for the sins of His people. If the wages of sin are death and Jesus dies for sinners, we would expect Him to stay dead, but God raises Him from the dead saying, that penalty has been paid for all of My people once and for all, one sacrifice perfectly done in My Son 
Now he has new life. So not only are sins atoned for, not only is their penalty paid, but sin and death are defeated. That's what the resurrection tells us. And so the resurrection is the the guarantee that all of the work of Christ up to that point and following after are acceptable to the Father. It's through the resurrection. And so Paul says it this way in Romans 8. He, God, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, will also give life to you in your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not just good news for Jesus. It's good news for all those who are in Christ. All those who have been born again through the work of Christ. And so the resurrection is the ground, the foundation of your hope of resurrection. Of your hope that Jesus' sacrifice for your sins was acceptable to the Father. There's the key point. Do you recognize that? Do you love that truth? Fourth question and answer. What therefore should the resurrection produce in the Christian believer? If that's really true, what we've said about the resurrection, what does it cause in you to develop? Well, a living hope. Verse 3. Now, hope is an interesting word. You, you might hope that this sermon will soon be over. You might hope that this afternoon it's not going to be as hot as it was yesterday. You might hope in all kinds of things. Some of them may come true. Some of them may be a vain hope. Sometimes we hope in things that have no validity whatsoever. What's the ground of our hope here? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it a true fact? Attested by 500 people. The apostles died for it. Some will deny it, but it's absolutely certain. He rose from the dead. What is your hope grounded in? Something that God has done that is absolutely true, that cannot be changed, that is your ground of hope. Not only for new life in Christ, but for resurrection. For a living hope. That's the kind of hope that Peter's talking about. Not a vain hope, not a possible hope, not a maybe hope, but an absolute certainty grounded on the work of Christ. Fifth question. What does this resurrection of Jesus Christ then guarantee for the believer? An inheritance. Ever receive an inheritance? That old rich uncle finally died? It's a wonderful thing to get an inheritance, particularly if it's unsuspected. It's usually something nice, something good. You don't inherit someone's bills. Well, you might. An inheritance is something rich, something wonderful. And look how Peter describes it. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by the power of God. Now, the Christian is given an inheritance because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that inheritance is described this way. It's a gift that God the Father gives to His children. Those whom He has adopted as His sons and daughters. No question God has what we call common grace for all of His creatures, but but for His adopted sons and daughters, He has an inheritance. And it is imperishable. It can't die or be lost. It's undefiled. It's holy without stain or blemish. It's, It's unfading. It will retain its vigor and its beauty forever. It's an unchanging, wonderful gift. And it's being kept in heaven for you. 
and you are being kept for it. And that's what God has given you in Christ Jesus. Is that not amazing? Well, what is it? What's the inheritance? Some might say, well, it's heaven. That's what God gives us. We inherit heaven. That's not what Peter says. Read carefully. The inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. Heaven's the location, but it's not the inheritance itself. Well, what could it possibly be? Let me read to you from John chapter 14. This is Jesus to his disciples. He says, In my Father's house there are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What's the inheritance there in heaven? It's Jesus. It's your salvation which begins with being born again and gives you faith and repentance and you are adopted and you are given the wonderful gift of justified righteousness and you are being sanctified and you will die and you will rise again and go to glory. So what? So you can be in heaven? Yes, but no. So you can be in heaven with Jesus. That's the inheritance. It's no good if He's not there. The inheritance is Jesus Himself. The eternal presence of God. This is the reversal of what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve in the presence of God, lost, now restored. And so what should be the response of Christians to this? What's the Christian's biblical response to such a truth? Well, Peter tells us many things. He says, we bless the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3. We rejoice, verse 6, with an expressible Filled with glory, joy, verse 8. We love Him, verse 8. We believe in Him, verse 8. Why? Verse 9, you're obtaining the salvation of your souls. But salvation is just not about you getting salvation. You are being saved for Jesus. That you might be in relationship with Him, which drives us to our very last point. What's the ultimate goal? It's verse 7. The praise, the glory, and honor at the revelation or coming of Jesus Christ. The reason that God has done all of this and the reason that you've been born again and everything that follows subsequent to that, the reason you're here now and part of a church, the reason you're growing and maturing in the faith is that Jesus Christ would receive praise, glory, and honor when He comes again. By you and by me and even by the fallen world who recognizes how blind they were. Peter starts his letter with these wonderful truths. You can unpack each one of those much more fully. But remember why he saved you. It's good for you. It's glorious for him. Because it shows the power of a loving God who having looked upon his desperate fallen world, knowing full well what occur, engineered, developed, planned, decreed, that His people would be saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And the hope that you have of being with Him for all eternity, the hope that you have of being sanctified in this life, the hope that you have when you get up tomorrow morning and suffering and difficulties are yours, is that everything that has been planned for you by a loving God is coming to pass and will be completed. And the stamp that says this is sealed, this is certain, is that Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate Easter Sunday once a year. But the reason we don't worship on Saturdays is because Sunday is the Lord's Day and the Lord's Day is the day He rose from the dead and every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. It confirms the cross. It confirms the plan of God. It confirms your salvation. It confirms all that you hope and dream that is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? Do you love it? And do you love the Jesus who made it possible? We've asked seven questions of this text. We've looked at it in various ways, how Peter answers it. Uh, let me ask you some questions now to help you take this home. Do you remember the story in Matthew 7, I believe it is? Christ is telling a parable about two men who are building houses. And uh, one builds on a rock, good foundation. The other builds on sand, the storms come, a parable of the storms of life. And the one that builds on the rock, of course, stands. And the one that builds on sand, the house collapses. It's a wonderful little parable. Every, even a child, can understand it. Build on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. Well, what's the ground, the foundation of your hope in your life? What are you building on? Is it shifting sand? Your own ideas? Your own dreams? Your own hopes that are maybe grounded on something solid, but maybe not? What are your plans for your life? What's the foundation of them? What are your hopes for your children? Jesus Christ is the rock of the parable. Jesus Christ is the rock of 1 Peter. Jesus Christ is the rock of the world. And your hope needs to be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness on Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground. Shifting sand. Peter's writing this letter to some people that are in some very difficult times. He's asking them to consider where their hope is seated, grounded, founded. And he's reminding them of what Christ has accomplished on their behalf. If all this is news to you and this is sort of a vague idea you've not heard before, then you need to talk to one of the leaders of the church here and, and find out what the gospel is and find out what it means to be grounded in Christ. And you need to repent of sins and trust that Christ is your substitute, that He's died in your place and, and come to Him and be joined with Him. But if you've been walking with Christ for a long time and you've forgotten the foundation, read 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1-12, through 12, again and again. And remember, and ask the questions, and hear Peter's answers, that Christ is your rock, and you have no other hope. But what a hope! What a hope! The eternal Son of God came to save you from sin and death out of His great mercy. He's done everything for you and to you that you need. And He's given you the assurance that it's absolutely true by rising from the dead. Don't put your hope anywhere else. Trust Christ. He'll never, ever fail you. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for...
Peter's reminder of these truths. Lord, as we go through this letter, may we ourselves in troubled times and in difficult places remember the promises that you have made. And may we find our only hope in Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen.